Hello and welcome to the Cottage Punk Podcast. Where we try our best to provide you with the latest news in arts, sciences and humanities. And today we're going to talk about quite a few things actually. We're going to discuss the US and the $3 billion um, disasters we've already had in 2018. Volcanoes and how they impact weather. As well as how AI is shifting how we think. We're also going to cover the discovery of a homo sapien finger bone in Saudi Arabia. Oh snap. (laughs) And we're going to talk about the discovery of a new Van Gogh drawing. Ooh la la. I'm your co-host Andrea Ristjord. And I'm your other co-host Andrew Pillamai. So to top things off, us Minnesotans, we love talking about the weather. Especially now. Especially now. It's mid to late April and we have 12 inches of snow outside. All of the cars look like little loaves of bread. miserable. I hate it. It's pretty bad. But this isn't something new. If we look back at 2017, we had forest fires in California. We had two massive hurricanes that covered the news for months, it feels like. And we had torrential rain all across the Northeast and the Midwest. And in 2018, we've already seen two massive nor'easters in the Northeast and obviously the Midwest, as well as massive thunder and hailstorms in the Southeast. It's only April, you guys. Like, this is four months into the year and we've already experienced all this bullshit. Yeah, definitely. And when we discuss climate change and how that's impacting natural disasters, it's projected that with climate change and the warming of the climate, there's going to be more energy present. So that just means everything's far more volatile. Everything's wanting to do way more than it was before. There's all this energy and it's got to go somewhere. And on top Mother of Mother Nature's been drinking some coffee. Yeah. She's been hitting those iced coffees hard. Uh, it's been hitting something else. I don't know what, but it's been hitting <laughs> She's something. She's raring to go. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And we recently went to a panel, a talk, a discussion at the Minneapolis Institute of Art, where they introduced and brought on stage an artist and photographer from Rikuzen Tamata. Takata. Takata. Rikuzen Takata, which is a small little town, super cute, super adorable, in northern Japan. And this town got heavily impacted by the tsunamis a few years back in Japan. And Naoya Hatakiyama, the photographer, came and discussed how that impacted him and how his photography helped shape the narrative of natural disasters. He was talking a lot about being an insider versus being an outsider and the differences there. What would you say about how he explained that and described that? Um, I think that he found it really difficult because he felt like both an insider and an outsider. And he... And why did he feel that way again? Because he grew up in Rikuzen Takata, but he was living in Tokyo when it happened. And his oh, family right. was in Rikuzen Takata. So it was kind of this like mad dash to find out what's going on, where's my family... 
Um, he's a really interesting guy. You should look him up. He's got um, lots of photographs out there. They're not all of natural disasters, but he does some really interesting work. They also brought onto the stage a journalist who discussed how nowadays with social media and smartphones, the people that are on the front lines and providing most of the news are the people actually experiencing it. People with live cameras, people with Twitter accounts. So the news stations are no longer the primary source on natural disaster news. He actually talked about how he got a lot of his information from either friends who were living in Houston at the time of this flooding Mm -hmm. or people that he met via friends or via the internet who were like, this is happening to me. And he found their footage and was like, this is really interesting. The world needs to know about this contacted them put it on the web and it's just like you got to just keep your eyes peeled nowadays Mm -hmm. everyone is part of that community and now we're getting more people having an opportunity to represent their community Mm -hmm. especially with natural disasters and the age of technology so these natural disasters that happened so far this year yes what were they again? They were two massive nor'easters. Okay, so explain what a nor'easter is. A nor'easter is essentially a massive swoop uh, of cold weather coming from the northeast mm-hmm. that introduces like a lot of precipitation and generally colder temperatures. So this is like from the northeast of the U.S. So this is like yeah. blizzards, blizzards and northeast. stuff coming from the ocean where all of the precipitation is evaporating. Mm -hmm. coming across the U.S. and just dumping all that shit down. Exactly. So, enough about the weather. We all know what the weather is. We all know how to look at the weather. So, from thinking about the sky and the climate to thinking about, like, the ground and dirt a little bit. Sure, why not? Getting grungy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So, there was some Saudi Arabian... um, not Saudi Arabian, but there's some archaeologists and anthropologists working in Saudi Arabia mm. in the Nefa Desert who just discovered a Homo sapien finger bone that they've dated to cool. 90,000 years old, which I so, think is super awesome. 90,000 years ago, there was a Homo sapien in this area that died and left their finger bones. That's what you're saying? Pretty much. So what what does that do to change our perspective on homo sapiens like what does this tell us so basically this tells us that um homo sapiens moved into eurasia way sooner than previously thought when did they think it was before so before um scientists believed that um homo sapiens were in the levant region which is think of like israel jordan that like think Mm. of like a bubble around that area um it only got as far south as the northern part of the Saudi Arabian desert. So even though this finger bone was found in the Saudi Arabian desert, it's still outside of the previously thought area. Gotcha. Um, so essentially, Homo sapiens migrated further than further we than we thought. thought. So the um, the date that we have for Homo sapiens being in the Levant region mm-hmm. is about a hundred thousand to one hundred thirty thousand years ago, and the next date of outside of that region in eurasia is 55 to forty thousand years so that's, that's a big gap a huge gap that's seventy thousand wow. years where 
we didn't realize yeah we didn't realize before the discovery of this finger bone that homo sapiens had migrated so with the discovery of this finger bone we're sort of realizing okay maybe we weren't really looking the right places maybe we didn't realize that this migration happened and was successful that's the key point is that it was successful migration um so soon so this opens up a huge opportunity for potential research sites and archaeological dig sites that we didn't realize was there so it's like there is so much there's potentially so much more data out there that we will now have access to because before we were disregarding these regions yeah well i know with paleontology and recording previous species and extinct species there are like magnitudes more actual organisms that existed than what we could ever potentially discover right because the only things that we're discovering now are things that happen to be in the right conditions to be like fossilized and just happen to die in a right kind of way where they get preserved i'm curious what is our current state going to look like in lots of plastic hundred thousand years lots of we're gonna have a massive footprint it's huge or are we maybe the earth will just get swallowed up by the sun when it sheds its outer layer and none of this even matters who knows but we're making a huge impact on the earth right now yeah most definitely all right so we covered our first two topics i think this is a good time to take a break we'll be right so back. we'll be right back however stay in your seats keep on driving keep doing what you're doing and please please i beg you stay on the line and continue to be curious all right what is cottage punk well let me tell you what cottage punk is cottage punk is your first stop when it comes to independent learning public scholarship and community outreach in regards to education here at cottage punk We want to provide you with interesting, appealing, and easy to understand news from all topics. Anything in academia from art, art history, to anthropology, to the hard sciences, and even for shits and giggles, we can do news from pop culture and what's happening on social media. We just want to make sure that you guys are informed. And the way we're going to do that is through a weekly news podcast called Hot Off The Press, which you can find on the Cottage Punk podcast every Sunday, as well as a monthly special feature podcast where we talk about a special topic from all sorts of perspectives. Perhaps you're an artist, perhaps you're a scientist, perhaps you're just someone from the public and you want to give your two cents about a certain subject. We're here so you can do that. We'll also be having a YouTube channel where we send out informational, educational videos that are fun to watch. And above all else, we'll also have the Cottage Punk website where you can find outside resources, outside links, anything that you might need to have right at your fingertips. All of our podcasts, videos and articles will also be available from the Cottage Punk website, as well as through Instagram at Cottage Punk, in uh, Snapchat 
No, just kidding. No Snapchat. But we will have a Twitter, The Cottage Punk, and a Facebook, also The Cottage Punk. So keep your eyes peeled. May 19th is the grand release for our website. And thank you so much for being involved so early on in the project. We hope to bring you the best. <laughs> okay, so welcome back everyone. Thank you for sticking around through the break. Um, to start things off, we're going to talk about volcanoes. Nice. So, recently a paper just came out where they found out that after a volcano eruption, not only do we get El Nino-like weather patterns the year after, but we get La Nina patterns the year after that. So what is an El Nino and La Nina? You hear all this stuff in the media, but I don't actually know what they are. So El Nino and La Nina are specifically talking about weather patterns in the Pacific Ocean mm-hmm. around the tropic area. And uh, El Nino is going to be like the warm phase. Mm-hmm. And the La Nina is going to be the cool phase. So in the US during El Nino, we're going to see droughts potentially, or at least drier weather, mm-hmm. as well as warmer temperatures than the average. And then during a La Nina year, we're going to see way more precipitation in the US, as well as cooler temperatures. And this is all because of the ocean and the winds mixing the ocean along the surface. So the way the U.S. experiences El Nino and La Nina is different than other areas in the world, right? Correct. Uh, If you go to, like, Southeast Asia, they also experience changes because of El Nino and La Nina. Mm -hmm. However, it's the the reverse. It's like the 50-50 opposite of what we see in the U.S. Is that because the U.S. is on... The east side of the Pacific. Okay, so because we're on one side of the, like, movement of wind and precipitation, we get the opposite effect that they do. Correct. Okay. Uh, So If you're interested in learning more about El Ninos and La Ninas, make sure to go check out the NOAA website at noaa.org. They are definitely the leading resource when it comes to weather, climate, and the ocean. So... Earlier in the podcast, we talked about nor'easters. Yep. How is that different from El Nino and La Nina? So the El Nino and the La Nina are specific terms led for just the tropics of the Pacific Ocean. Okay. However, there's also a lot of wind patterns and like wave-like experiences happening around the poles. And a nor'easter is essentially when one of these waves of cold wind and atmosphere come down and reach into the U.S. Got you. So how does this El Nino-La Nina stuff relate to volcanoes? And how you don't look Mm. at volcanoes to figure this out. How do you get this information and how are volcanoes related? So specifically, the paper looks at volcanoes in Papua New Guinea. Mm -hmm. And they look at the lakes surrounding the volcano. Because these lakes are really really accurate with recording the atmosphere and the climate around them Mm -hmm. so what they do is they go to these lakes and they get these long sediment cores that are essentially just a massive tube of mud nice so when i was little when i went to a science center 
um represent represent support your local science center um they did um a little mini lesson on sediments and geology and part of it was they gave us like party-sized candy bars and clear straws and what they did was they had us press the straw into the candy bar and then when you take the straw out you can see all the different layers of the candy bar that's basically a sediment that's awesome that's exactly what a sediment core nice is only instead of chocolate nougat and caramel you're getting don't forget those peanuts and the peanuts (laughs) so important Oh, instead of having delicious tasted treats, you get layers of sediment. And so like of mud law, and rock and sand and silt. Yeah, and because of the laws of, of geology, we always know that the top layer is the most recent layer. And the layer before that is chronologically something deposited before. Mm-hmm. So they're looking at these cores and they're looking for places where we get volcano ash to signify that a volcano eruption occurred Mm -hmm. and then they're looking at the sediments that come after it and they're seeing and this is important to note el nino as well as la nina like weather patterns they're not technically considered el nino la nina Mm -hmm. since those terms are specially reserved for the pacific ocean and that cyclic pattern right but what's interesting is we for a long time thought El Niños and La Niñas were part of something cyclical and not necessarily tied together. Mm-hmm. But after looking at volcanoes and the weather they cause, we now know that the El Niño and the La Niña are like very closely tied together, if not the same occurrence and event. So maybe. El Nino, La Nina, they don't happen independent of one another, do they? So we don't see any occurrences, maybe, of El Ninos or La Ninas independently, since it would be hard to describe them as an El Nino or a La Nina event. Without the comparison of the previous or post-year. So maybe um, you could just call that whole phenomenon one thing those that two yeah. year span is just one thing that isn't called an el nino or la nina yeah you certainly could okay and there's definitely an artist out there who's well renowned for his observations on the sky and what comes above him mm-hmm. vincent van gogh van gogh so sliding right into this next topic here um so recently there was recently in terms of art history art history is like super stretched out timeline kind of like geology um but like way shorter um but um there's a drawing that actually two drawings that were just authenticated as legit vincent van gogh drawings which is a big deal you can't just be like i've got a vincent van gogh painting in my house that's totally legit yeah no you have to like there's a huge process you have to go through to authenticate these things yeah and so back in 2014 um the owners of this what they thought was a Van Gogh drawing, Mm -hmm. gave their drawing to the Van Vilsingen Art Foundation. Awesome. And the Van Vilsingen Art Foundation... Wait, where is that? um, I believe it's in the Netherlands. I'm not 100%. Um, But they showed it to specialists at the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam. And Mm. um, so this is back in 2014. But through research, um, they discovered that this drawing was a legitimate... Vincent Van Gogh drawing. 
That's awesome. Um, and what's really cool about this is that through the research to authenticate the Van Velsingen mm-hmm. drawing, the Van Gogh Museum also revisited <sighs> research on a drawing that they already had that they didn't think was so Van Gogh. what was it about this new drawing that made them realize, aha, now this drawing can be validated as well. Well, I don't know because I wasn't doing the research on it. But when you do research on to authenticate a piece of art, you have to look at a bunch of different things. You have to look at the provenance of the piece of art. So that's like basically the object's personal history. Cool. Who owned it, where it was during different time periods. And you can trace it back. Like, for instance, this new drawing was in the provenance traced back to part of Theo Van Gogh's collection i see and so that's how that's one of the reasons they decided that it was a legit van gogh anyway Mm. so you have to look at the provenance you have to look at the um the materials used like did the Mm -hmm. artist even have access to that material at that time period Mm -hmm. you have to look at the subject matter because if van gogh is known for painting and drawing landscapes and hills or um haystacks and stuff like that he's not gonna go and do like a painting of tokyo like that wouldn't make any sense right so you have to look at the subject matter um you have to look at the technique and the Mm -hmm. style because van gogh has a very distinctive style and there are a billion people who there are a billion people who can replicate that style but you have to take into account all the other categories in order to authenticate it so what about both of these pieces is the same are they from like the same time in his life or well so the piece that was at the van gogh museum they weren't sure if it was real or not they had it in their archives and they had done research on it mm-hmm. before but they still weren't 100 percent about it and through the research of the new drawing the new drawing i believe is called montmartre and the stoke quarry hmm. um stone quarry sorry stoke quarry um and so through researching that piece they discovered that um, they needed to revisit this other drawing because it was very Mm. similar to the stone quarry piece. Um, And what they found is that during this time in Vincent Van Gogh's life, he just moved to Paris and he was still sort of discovering his own style, which is why it was ambiguous. Okay. One of the reasons why it was ambiguous as if it was actually right. his or not. Because he was still developing what we know as the Vincent van Gogh style. So it didn't... So these two pieces don't quite look like what we expect to see from van Gogh. They're on their way, but they aren't like, oh, for sure, that's Vincent van Gogh's style. Otherwise, that's they would have really authenticated cool. it many years before. So these pieces help us see the change in thought process of Vincent van Gogh. For sure. Which is one thing that's really interesting about all artists i think is because you don't just like or you're not out of the gates with your own style yeah. you have to work at it you have to develop it and a lot of people myself included have a lot of anxieties about what's my personal style do i have to have mm-hmm. one and i think that part of being a successful artist is to constantly question that yeah. and constantly change what you're doing to like really keep you on your toes and keep yourself working towards something new and better and different so that brings us to our next topic about how Talking about artificial intelligence has shifted how philosophers, neuroscientists, the whole gambit are starting to think about human brains differently as well. Wow. So our own thought processes are going through this whole 
phase change just like Vincent van Gogh's art style. Mm -hmm. And essentially what's happening is when we dive into a new topic or a new subject, like artificial intelligence, Mm -hmm. we also start to use new vocabulary and we use new terms to describe and explain what's happening with that subject. Mm -hmm. So with artificial intelligence, we think about machines, we think about machine learning and the language that's used. And now we're starting to apply those terms to looking at the human brain. That's crazy. So before we were kind of thinking like how much are robots like us, but now Now, we're thinking how much are we like robots? Exactly. That's nuts. It's almost as if humans... At so in some way or another, could be defined as just carbon-based machines. And we're starting to think now that our own thinking process may actually be more similar to a computer's than originally thought. Weird. I wonder how yeah. much like people are going to be um, curious and how much debate is going to happen about emotion and things that we traditionally think of ourselves as being like human traits because for a lot of philosophers things like emotion is something that we put off as being a soul or a spirit or something that can't be described physically or in the science sphere Mm -hmm. so it's really cool to see that something like emotions may be conceivable for robots Mm -hmm. anyways i think that's uh it for today's podcast thanks for listening guys we appreciate all of your feedback and all of your support Uh, catch us next week next sunday okay bye your device just restarted